Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Art Business Podcast. And my guest today is James Ward, who is the founder and director of JC Gallery, which is a relatively newly opened gallery in Mayfair in London. Uh, so welcome, James. Thank you for being a guest today. Thank you very much, David. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, no, you're welcome. Um, so James, straight into the, uh, the, 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 the Desert Island Disc questions. Uh, your favorite city? My favorite city, I think, um, you know, that's a, that's a tricky one. I think my, obviously, I think New York is a very special city. It really has this, this real charm to it. And I call it a bit of a harsh charm because yeah, everyone's quite brash. You have to adapt, um, but you kind of can't help but fall in love with the place. It's, uh, it sort of feels a little bit of a home from home, I suppose, very similar to London, but has a, uh, a, a different feel. Um, and I think it's lovely. My other, the other city I would say that I, I'm very fond of is Chicago. Chicago is a city that I feel is um, full of culture. It hasn't quite developed in terms of its gallery spaces and being as uh, clearly as fruitful as New York is, but Chicago has something about it that's that's got it's got everything. You know, it's really got quite a vibrant scene uh, culturally. It just it's um, I think it might blossom into something quite special. Chicago, I think it's lovely. I have never been to Chicago. I've been to New York several times and I totally agree. I think that's a very good description from a Brit about being an <laughs> Englishman in New York, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and 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 it's one of those places that when you go to, you kind of, you have this image, you have a kind of almost like movie image in your mind, I always think, about New York. And on one level, you're kind of disappointed. On another level, um, I, th I think I was a bit disappointed the first time because... I was going to kind of bars and cafes and restaurants and 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 it was just like being in London you know there were there were a lot of like immigrant people who were serving me and I wanted to speak to some uh you know I think they were newly immigrants if you like and they weren't hadn't yeah. become what I would call full New Yorkers yet and someone just said to me um oh go go down to Greenwich Village and go to some jazz clubs people are very yes. intimate and uh and friendly and that's what I did and I started chatting to people and you know yeah. uh that there's very a little friendly. bit of advice to people there Yes, you, it's funny you should say that because um, my colleague and I, we go to New York uh, every year. We keep in touch with a lot of dealers and galleries in New York. And we actually went uh, early January and we find going in the second week of Jan January, it's quite quiet in the art scene. You People are still kind of waking up um, and uh, it's a good time to go. And yeah. uh, the city's not too busy. And I did exactly what you just described. Went to Greenwich Village and I found a lovely little jazz club around the corner it was in a basement here and you know you really can't help but submerging yourself in that scene that sort of jazz culture scene that's that's there but you have to go looking for it it's not going to jump out at you yeah and I found they were so friendly I mean I can't remember now the first one I went to I remember the musician because I, I still that's when I first saw him and heard him a guy called Bill Charlap who's a, a pianist he has a little trio um, fairly trad jazz stuff but wonderfully musical and you know the piano he's brilliant on the piano and um and then I, I met someone there uh a, a amazing I can't even remember her name amazing woman that double bassist jazz player who who 
who um, the next year I, I I saw whether she was doing anything. She was playing with Les Paul, you know, the, the, who, wow. the, the yeah. famous Les Paul guitar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 yeah. I saw her in an, I saw her there. And but she said, oh, um, she just gave me a whole list of other things going on that night, not just that oh, week. Wow. <laughs> so she just said, just after this, you know, because you'll remember that they're strange little sessions, aren't they? And then you have to get yes. out another lot of people come in. So I just yeah. I went to another two clubs that night until like the early hours of the morning, and it was really good That's fun, and, and everyone was so, so friendly. Fun. Yeah, yeah, it's so fun. <laughs> no, anyway, so so New York, yeah, um, yeah, and um, and 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 obviously we could spend the whole podcast talking about your interest in um, in in like old masters and um, American modernism that we'll obviously come to. Um, and, and and how amazing New York is, like London, for for, for lots of different collections with with that material in. Mm. But um, we could, we yeah. could come. Yeah, go on. It's, it, no, it's, it's just it's just that New York, it's it's so new. It feels new. You yeah. know, it feels like it's kind of still yeah. develop. You know, not developing. It's obviously, it's the the the, well, the it's the biggest art city in the world, but it's just. It feels so adaptable and, um, you know, obviously London has so much charm, so much heritage, so much uh, depth there. Um, but New York feels like it's, um, you know, you can really be a part of something special and, and, and you know, sort of thinking about the, 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 the modernists in the early 20th century, that's, the city was still in a state of flux just a century ago. Uh, it was still building, going through this huge industrial revolution. So when I visit, I often think about that and think, gosh, that's, that's so interesting that it's it's still, it, you've got to remind yourself that it's still a, quite a young city. Absolutely. I, mean, I was just thinking that even the kind of iconic older buildings are, are later than that, that yeah. early American modernism period. I'm thinking of the flat iron building that wasn't built when they were were exactly yeah 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 <laughs> uh yeah no it's, it's interesting actually because a lot of new yorkers might be surprised at what you've just said but i think coming from like the uk it 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 does the uk does in some ways feel less versatile and adaptable because of that heritage so history. true yeah and i think i think new york what what it's got going for it is that it, it's still developing and adapting and being versatile yeah yeah, yeah, totally. So do you do you have any kind of places that you go to chill out in, like countryside or ski locate, you know, anything like that that's outside yeah. of an urban environment? Well, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I do love skiing and I do find skiing quite therapeutic. But um for me, particularly if I want to just uh, get out of London and um I really love the countryside. I am a country boy at heart, really, to be honest. Um but 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 very much enjoy living in the city. It's just I love to go to the Northamptonshire countryside, which is where I grew up. It's um, full of familiar familiarity for me. It's full of you know people that I know. It's full of you know this very community based structure. It's all farmers that sort of help each other. Um, very um, it's it's very safe. You know, and and walking around the countryside in Northamptonshire, it's so sort of beautiful and untouched. I mean, there's hardly any flat land in Northamptonshire. It's not rolling hills, but it's it's sort of it's just beautiful scenic countryside. I don't think there's any better countryside for me anyway than Northamptonshire. It's it's got everything, and 
I really love um, occasionally at the weekends, you're going to Northamptonshire, you know, walking the dogs around the fields. And it's that peace that you find where you don't hear anything. You just hear the, the noises of the trees, the wind, you know, the rain, you know, it's, it, it, I know this, it sounds crazy, but just the, the sound of the rain in the countryside sounds different to the rain in London or in the city. Definitely. It's just, it's got, it's lovely. I actually really enjoy it. And it's that piece that, you know, just to be able to walk and sort of uh, be in the fresh air, it, it's it's essential for me to survive. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I have exactly the same feelings about the countryside. And, you know, I think at the start of COVID, a lot of us were tempted to kind of move out. And uh, it, I mean, you know, I, I suspect you're similar to me in, in as much as I really don't want to leave the city and 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 I worry that um I mean it's it's nice for you because if you go back to Northamptonshire you have all you you have roots there uh whereas all of my roots have kind of gone they weren't in such a romantic my upbringing wasn't in such a romantic setting as like John Clare's Northamptonshire I was just thinking the yes, John you know, Clare yeah John Clare is this great for the benefit mm. of the listeners John Clare's this amazing was he 18th century or 19th? yes he was 18th he was. century poet, poet. yeah oh. who, who 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 wrote poems about Northamptonshire and I'm afraid I, I I'm ashamed to say I still haven't investigated Northamptonshire um, oh. My my son has, um, and he keeps saying, oh, you must go out there for the reasons that you've said, that you really, yes. you know, it's not an obvious place to go, which probably makes it no, even it's more not. Attractive. You're absolutely right. It, I mean, it doesn't have much to offer, I'm afraid, other than the rural side of things. Um, yeah. And the, the other place that I'm very fond of is Norfolk. I think yes. that's a beautiful part of the world and something that... Um, it's got some really lovely gems um, there, you know, lovely beaches that they're not the prettiest beaches, but they're really well looked after. And there's um, you sort of transported back into sort of the 1950s almost in Norfolk. Yeah. It, yeah. It's just a lovely way of life. That That is um, somewhere that is somewhere I know very well. Yes. <laughs> the North, the North Norfolk coast in particular. Yes. Yeah. The same same here. Yes. Yeah. Um, my grandfather uh, lived in Norfolk for for the um the last sort of period of his life in, in North Walsham, which is uh, um, which is in North Norfolk. So you, you, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with that, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, you know, we, again, we could carry on talking about it. <laughs> what I would say to people is that when you talk, I mean, and I think a lot of the listeners, particularly the, the younger ones who, who, who you know, the, the new, the Gen Z, Z's who, who suffered lockdown in such a bad way, I would say, you know, if they were still studying at university, um, you know everybody is thinking about mindfulness now and you know mm -hmm. i think what you the way you very beautifully describe the listening to the rain and the wind without any distractions you do get that in london but i mean i'm under a flight path living at kew gardens unfortunately although kew gardens itself is beautiful yes it is. but, but we have to you i don't know whether you can hear it but I, there's a plane going over my head like every 90 seconds and, oh, right. and it's when when i get out to norfolk but I love it because I just switch off and I listen and I can hear the birds properly without any kind of competing distractions. Anyway, yes. fa favourite building? Do you have a favourite building? <laughs> um, my favourite building, I think, it, it has to be all thought for me. Sorry to be so... <laughs> I think, I think for the benefit... Sorry to interrupt, but I think for the benefit of the listeners, that was a question we were going to talk about. I was going to ask you, obviously, later. But maybe oh, okay. now you could say a little bit about 
you know, most of the listeners won't have been to Awful. I'm ashamed to say I still haven't. Every year oh. I look it up on its website and work out if I can get up there. Almost yes. certainly this year I will do, particularly after speaking to you. So far away, um, tell us all about Althorpe House. Well, I don't know where to begin with Althorpe. Uh, it, was a, it was built in 1508. It was built by the Spencer family for the Spencer family. Um, so it's had 19 generations of the Spencer family within it. And what is so special about Althorpe is that, you know, it, it, it is how it was built. You know, it's been it's been in one family's ownership since its since its conception. I think that's what's lovely about it is that every earl that's inherited Althorpe has contributed to it, added to it. It's been a growth of a collection within that house of art, furniture, ceramics, all sorts of chattels. And that's so special because I don't think there are many stately homes in England that are privately owned that have that kind of wealth of, of art within it. I mean, it's full of 17th century old masters, you know, Rubens, Gainsborough, Van Dyke, Joshua Reynolds. I mean, you name it, it's got everything. And, um, it, and it's all, it's a lived in family home. And that's what's beautiful about it. It's not a sort of stately home that's, you know, quite often you'd go and visit, perhaps it's a National Trust property. And you can feel it's a little bit cold. You know, sort of maybe dusty, sort of muggy feeling. There is none of that at all, Thorpe. It's fresh. It's It's got a real magical charm to it. And um, you definitely get that feeling when you're walking around the house. Um, I think that's that's what's that's why I would choose that as my favorite building because when you're walking around Althorpe, you walk on the floorboards that you know kings and queens have walked upon, and and some amazing stories. You know, I really do um, want to hammer home the fact that it hasn't really changed for over five hundred years, and the portraits on the on the walls and the scenes they all have these wonderful stories. Um, so King, uh, King Charles I learned the signing of his death warrant to us, who was playing bowls on the front lawns of Althorpe. Um, and there are these wonderful stories. There's the, the, the picture gallery up in Althorpe, which is um, a 60 foot long room that um, was designed for ladies in long dresses to walk in when it was raining and muddy outside. They'd use it to exercise. So 15 times up and down is a mile. And... Um, and there's these portraits of uh, what we call the Windsor beauties, and they're all they're all essentially mistresses of Charles II. So when the king would come and visit Althorpe, the thing to do to stay in keeping with the king was to have a portrait done of his current mistress and hang it on the wall. And they're all, I mean, he certainly had a type. When you go to Althorpe, you'll see it. It's, um, it's but I love those stories that, uh, it's just fascinating, um, and that I could go on and on about the the artwork uh, at Althorpe and and the connection also with the family. So, what surprises me is that obviously portraits um, in those days were a snapshot in time, almost a historical document, and they're all essentially selfies. You know, we're we're, we're kind of doing the same thing now. Nothing's really changed. It's just we're doing it in a digital way on a on a on a mobile. Um, but that was the the way uh, things were done back in those days, and I, it's it's so it's got such rich English history. Um, you, you 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 honestly you get lost in it. 
I, I'm so looking forward to it. One of the questions I was going to ask, as this is an art business podcast, um, many of our English country houses, you know, were, you know, have been badly hit in different periods by inheritance tax, particularly after World War II and so on. Um, I, what I was going to ask you is, um, have they, in your knowledge, have they had to sell off any of that art collection at any period? Well, to tell you the truth, no. I mean, we have, uh, you know, we. I, I know Lord Spencer cleared out the attics uh, mm. at one point and had an attic sale. <laughs> but to be honest, um, the the estate in general has been extremely well managed over the years, and and farming is a big part of the estate, and that's essentially how they make most of their money. I mean. Yeah. Um, the Spencer family were originally sheep farmers. That's how they made their money originally. And um, and that's sort of continued to this day, really. They obviously have a, an estate in Norfolk, too, too, called North Creek, which backs onto Sandringham. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, various properties and things in properties in London, too. So, you know, they, they, they've been very smart, very clever. And, um, you know, uh, we, we've we've also held a number of events at Allthorpe too. We had a literary festival, which which went for, um, gosh, 15, 16 years. And, um, you know, lovely events like that, which have, have helped contribute. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for the benefit of the listeners, again, um, I know that uh, the, that kind of property and the way it's structured and run, um, if I'm right, correct me if I'm wrong, James, but um, presumably they benefit from the in lieu of inherent inheritance tax scheme, whereby so long as they open the collection to the public a certain number of days per year, they they don't have to suffer inheritance tax, which would be which is currently forty percent in the UK. And yes. um, that if um, you know, <laughs> hopefully it won't happen soon. If mm -hmm. when the earl dies, the the descendants have to pay that tax on the whole estate, which includes the value of the art collection. And one way of avoiding that is just keeping open to the public. Perhaps a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, um, it's true. And um, you know, it, it is a real balance um, because that house, it, 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 whether it's open or not, it costs a lot of money to keep up, you know, yeah. the repair. And, and such and um yes it, it's it's that that would be crippling you know for for an estate like that to have that you know it would be a, such a whopping great amount um but yeah. um lord and lady spencer have done a fantastic job of keeping the house um keeping it up you know there, there was a huge renovation project um i would have gosh it'd be about 15 15 or so years ago where the the roof was redone and there was 83 tons of lead that had to be repaired on the mm. roof of Althorpe. it was an 18 month conservation project that's not cheap and no. um you know to keep that going is, is is really impressive yeah yeah and are they um some of the other similar um uh houses that i've been to um, and if if listeners are interested, if you look up Historic House Association, these these kind of houses aren't uh, owned by charitable organisations like the National Trust and English Heritage. Mm. Now, mm. they they're a part of this. Many of them are part of this organisation called Historic Houses Association. It's well worth looking at. You can actually get a join it as a member every year, and then you you get all this information about when you can visit some of these places that many members of the public don't know about and have, haven't been to mm. at all. I, yeah. I assume that Althorpe is part of HHA. 
They are actually, yeah. they are. Um, so members are able to, to visit Allthorpe um, under that membership. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. Um, what I was going to ask, um, I was thinking of someone like Houghton Hall in Norfolk, which you will probably oh, yes. And and again, again, still lived in by I think the Chumlers, um, if I remember rightly. And, right. Yes. Yeah, and and that was an example of where they had to sell off an amazing art collection because of I think probably gambling, or it usually was in in and it, and it was sold to the um, Catherine the Great, and, and oh, wow. most of it is now in the Hermitage. And then a few years ago, of course, they the Hermitage, you know, when we were when we were on good terms with Russia lent yes. lent all of this back and they repositioned the paintings back in situ which was an amazing mm -hmm. I don't know if you went to that what but what mm -hmm. I was going to ask about that place is they're still very much into contemporary you know so they're still they're still um patrons of contemporary artists like Richard Long yes uh, do you do you um and Turrell uh, are they all are the Spencers still um, patrons of contemporary artists to any extent. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Lord Spencer's very much got his finger on the pulse of um, contemporary art, and um, it's really amazing. Uh, he's been very bold and hung some quite contemporary works in the in the house alongside some of the greats. You know, there's there's one work that's you know just meters away from a Van Dyke, and uh, you know you do think, gosh, that's it somehow it works you think in your mind you know as a curator you think gosh that's just it's got to be either a, a a stark contrast or have some sort of you know thread there but um it it works quite beautifully yeah no i i, I think it's really good i think i think you know when i think of a lot of the british aristocrats at the moment um some of the some of them are less into you know supporting contemporary artists but I, I i have an admiration for those that continue to i'm thinking of people like the um the devonshires at chatsworth they still oh, yes. seem to support a lot of contemporary artists as well um before, i think we might come back to all thought when we're talking sure. about your 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 bio to date um james but i just wanted to listeners might be interested in you know your musical tastes uh could you speak about that well, yeah, I mean, I I think today you said about talked about jazz. <laughs> yeah, jazz, jazz, jazz. Um, jazz. I I do really love. I I must say, I struggle sometimes, um, with jazz that's a little bit off piece, shall we say? Uh, that sort of goes on a little bit of a tangent. I prefer uh jazz that has much more of a structured rhythm. Um, that you can sort of get into and a sort of repetitive. Um musical element that's that's the sort of jazz that I really like you know the old sort of 1950s yeah jazz, <laughs> yeah yeah um but I have very eclectic tastes you know I can I, I listen to all sorts of different things um I I also um I quite like country music as well I sort of got I have got into country music a little bit um do you mean do you mean American in the American sense or do you mean folk music in the British sense no actually it's more the American sense yeah. and that's only because like all things you have to sort of experience it live to really get a real taste of 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 what it's about and I was very fortunate to be um I was in Chicago with some friends of mine and we went to a country concert. We had absolutely no idea who this chap was, uh, what the concert would be like, you know, what the atmosphere would be like, had absolutely no preconceived ideas. Went to this concert and it was unbelievable. It was a guy called Morgan Wallen who um, I've now sort of followed and he did one tour date in the UK recently. And um, 
He is fantastic. I mean, there's, I think what I love about it is with country music, it tells a story quite often, a story that you can really get your teeth into. It's from, it feels like it's from the heart. It feels very personal. Um, it feels quite contemporary. You know, when you think of country music, perhaps you think of, you know, a barn dance or thing. It's not like that at all. You know, there's a very contemporary country music singers that um, I feel very relevant and I sort of get into that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I think the lovely thing about country music and then British folk music is that because it, because you don't, the big thing isn't to write it down. And because if you write it down and particularly the lyrics, it gets stuck in a period. Whereas because it's sort of passed on orally and by through memory most of the time, people just end up adding their more contemporary verses sometimes. And I, I think that's what you're getting at there. So it, it again has a sense of somewhere like Allthorpe, but it's you're you're in a kind of very um you're you're aware you're listening to something quite traditional that I use being handed down generation to generation. But you're also aware if it's a good musician that they're adding some of their contemporary vibes to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um uh, and I like the way that, you know, quite often they, they all have different tempos, you know, so it doesn't feel too samey to me. Uh, I, 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 yeah, it's 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 a fantastic and also super inclusive crowd. It's a bit like the jazz scene. You know, everyone's so they, they they're, they're into the music, yeah. you know, and they're into the message in the music. Yeah. They really uh, embrace that. And, they, and if you're part of that, they bring you in. They bring yes. you into their club. And I really, I really like that. Very inclusive. I think that that's something, another thing that might have got lost during COVID-19 is, um, you know, particularly for younger people, um, you know, you, you and I were, were just used to a culture where you were kind of almost expected by your peer group to, to go to live music events, not just the obvious big stadium events, but to, to go to to the pub on the corner and listen to some folk music or it might have a, like a, a a little concert hall at the back and there's a, a great new rock band over from Dublin you know I, I, I can just think of loads of stories like that but it's a community isn't it and you keep you go yeah. back and you see the same people there a lot of the it's time true. it's so true and yeah. it's lovely it feels warm yeah yeah exactly this is a difficult question um uh, and uh, about art but uh, so I'm going to be I'm going to be really I, I'm going to be really strict on this. So if someone put yeah. a gun against your head and said, right, you've got to choose a work of art to take to that desert island, just one, oh, what would it be? <laughs> oh, just one. Oh, my goodness. Um, gosh, well, th th there is a reason why I deal in American modernism. Mm. And, uh, and I love um, Arthur Dove's work yeah. in particular. But... If I was to, to 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 go on a contemporary on a contemporary scene, I probably would choose some work by maybe Tracy Emin. Really, I think her work is superb. I think the way that she's creating work at the moment, where it's sort of that that sort of that, that those beautiful mark making um, works that she's doing are just wonderful, and they leave. For me, I love to really think about an artwork. I like to be, I like to see something and then I like to think about it afterwards. I like that entertainment of having to really explore that in my mind after I've seen it. And for, for me, Tracy Emin's work does that for me. You know, those, those very sort of um, beautiful lines that she creates and it, it, it doesn't reveal too much. And for me, the entertainment is, is up here to sort of really explore that and think about it and really get into the meaning of it. And I think that's that's why Tracy Emin's work 
um, really appeals to me. Yeah, I I must say I'm surprised. I thought that you'd come up with like a, an old master or a, an early 20th century American work. So that I think that's wonderfully wonderful, and I I totally agree with you. I think I think you know, and and Tracy's cape one of those. I think the the reason the YBAs, the Young British Artists, or one of the reasons they became so successful is they were willing to, they didn't mind being producing some work that was more commercial, like the Neons, probably one might go for with Tracy MN, you know, the all of our students, any of our students who've come, well, they they will, my current students will be doing this in a couple of weeks' time when we're off to the Netherlands for Maastricht, the European Fine Amazing. Art Fair, because we're leaving St Pancras, and of course there's a Tracy MN Neon as you uh, uh, above the station in St Pancras, um, yes, and, and 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 there's something about her her work which which is so moving because of her, you know, her her very um, her her bio her biography is very very touching and emotional as, mm -hmm. as you probably know, and I think I think when you see those beautifully very simple sort of poetic written statements in neon, you've got to know Tracy. <laughs> and her it's background so to understand where that's coming from and it's just so direct and pure uh, and, mm -hmm. and the line the line of, that you, that you're probably thinking more about her drawings but the line of those drawings i think is in the way is in the calligraphy of the handwriting as well yes yeah absolutely she reveals all you know she lays everything out there okay. she is unapologetic she is she is who she is and I think that's really lovely in a, in a in a world where perhaps, you know, within the likes of say Instagram, where we don't tend to reveal, you know, the the you know the boring elements of our lives or the slightly darker elements of our lives, Tracy's out there mm -hmm. showing everything and revealing everything and wanting you to feel that. And I I that's what I sort of am drawn towards. You know, that, yeah, that and, and and I. I love her honesty. I, I I saw her in a in an interview once, and um, she you know she's one of those people who's just incredibly honest. And the press mm. have a bit of a go at her, saying oh she comes on drunk or what I used to, um, you know. And she she as you say she just totally speaks her mind. She's upfront, mm. and of course that's one of that's why we have artists. We expect them mm. to do things that we can't do in our own. <laughs> work and careers you know so true. Yeah, you couldn't behave true. like tracy emin if you're working at all for example <laughs> probably no. um well, well until the doors are closed yes <laughs> yeah. and i just wanted to come back to that a little bit now talk to talk a little bit more about you and your life in 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 the art world um james mm -hmm. so so i think you completed a uh, your bachelor's degree in performing arts at, at Winchester, I think, if I remember, and that that in itself is interesting. You were doing performing arts, and then mm -hmm. then I believe that you went pretty straight to work in events at Althorpe. Um, yeah, and, and Althorpe, as James already said, it's it's best known to most of us as the home of the Spencer family. And uh, for those of you from a younger generation who can't remember this, uh, this of course was the 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 home of Princess Diana, rest in peace. Uh, her brother is the current earl um so so that is one of the reasons i guess that the house has kind of you know is has become more famous and probably is more visited uh, more recently uh diana uh, bless her is, is is as i understand it buried on an island in a lake there um but and you've already said something about the collection but maybe you could say something more about what was your role there and what you know what was a day in the life of james ward when he was uh, all for a working life 
Well, I mean, I I I was very blessed there. I worked I worked for His Lordship for fifteen years, and I I started, you know, when I just was at university, and um, it was the perfect job to have during the summer when you came back from university because um, it was a really nice uh, place to work. Um, you were surrounded by other students doing exactly the same thing and the retired too. It was a beautiful balance of that's sort of the, the guidance of, 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 of the, the older generation and then our, uh, you know, the students coming back and it, it was just such a wonderful combo and it really worked. Um, but I kind of started just by doing everything, you know, cleaning the loose, you know, and, and stuff like that, you know, right from day one. And I sort of worked my way up. I started, um, uh, you know, as, in, as cafe manager for a little time whilst we were open to the public. Then I started doing events and running some of the events, the literary festival, um, and then being much more um working much more within the, the the realm of the house itself I became general manager and um worked very closely with the family and their private events within the house you know if they're entertaining guests that came family that came and um it was it was really hard work David I'm not going to lie but it was it, it didn't really feel like hard work because I enjoyed it so much and I I, I you know long days long hours quite a lot you know it's like managing an army to be honest sure. and an estate like that and it's so personal too because it's it's you know whilst it's a very large estate it's you know got sort of 35 full-time members of staff if you include you know the gardeners gamekeepers and foresters and everything um but everyone was pulling in one direction and if if we ever had someone that wasn't pulling in the right direction they didn't last long because they just didn't fit in and um everyone was so dedicated to to Althorpe and the family and um so yes yeah, so, so so from an operational perspective there was quite a lot a lot under my remit at one time and um and i i i'm just so blessed to have had that opportunity um, I look back at it with very fond memories. It, it, it is a bit of a young man's game, I think, someone that, you know, ha is sort of switched on and, 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 and able to commit themselves fully to the role. You know, you cannot, um, in a role like that, be half in, half out. You've got to be fully dedicated to the role. Um, but, um, yeah, as I say, it was um, an incredible time of my life. And, um, and I still sort of keep in touch with the estate now, which, uh, which is great. That's lovely. It's a, and I, I think, again, for, for particularly for my current students and younger alumni, you know, we're always saying to them, this isn't the, you know, you're, you're, you've been studying art because you love it, but it's hot. If you want to actually stay in that and work in it, it's not easy. I, I've never known any of my alumni come to me and say, oh, it's an easy job. You know, I go in at nine, switch off at five and that's it. You've got to be expected like 24 seven in a lot of those jobs. You know, you might suddenly be called upon to fly out to New York, maybe courier a work back, you know, exactly. <laughs> all sorts exactly. of things happen. But it is exciting. But if you want to be in that exciting art, you know, art world, you've, you've got to be prepared to pull your weight. Yeah, there's a really good point that you make there. Uh, I think you've just got to be dedicated and and not be a clock watcher. You've yeah. got to be there until the job's done and and be you know in it um, fully uh, for the great for the for the better of the estate. You know, you're all working to 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 achieve 
a certain level of standard um, service you. It's the attention to detail, really, that that goes a, an enormous way in, in, in a sort of a uh, house like that. You've really got to build relationships within your team, communicate very well. Um, and it is it is it is a sort of a real team game, that that sort of job. Do you think having studied performing arts, that might have helped you develop your character and personality, or were you just naturally always a good a good team player? Um, I think I think I was probably always uh, had a, a team ethic, but I, what what that doing that degree helped me is is with my confidence and my relationship building with people. Um, you know, I grew up in rural Northamptonshire. You know, went to all boys school. I you know I. It was, I was sort of very sheltered. And I think going to university and doing a performing arts degree where you have to devise theater, you have to think creatively, you have to put yourself on stage, you have to expose yourself, you know, you have to kind of be very forthcoming. And I think that did me the world of good in terms of sort of being much more confident and, and, and sort of really trusting in, in building relationships with people. Yeah, I often say to my any of my we we've got um we were talking about this before the podcast began. Um, you know, I think COVID had a profound effect on 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 young people coming through the system now. And we've noticed the, a, a lacking of confidence in some of our students, increasing number of our students. Not their fault. I think it's just to do with, you know, not the, the strangeness of lockdowns. Mm. I have um if someone says, Oh, I'm really scared about the presentations next week. Um, I tend to say to them, look, if you're scared of public speaking, um, go along, go along the Marlborough Road to the um, to the Royal Academy of Music. And um, and if you just walk in, the, if you look at the notice board, you'll find current music students you know, offering singing lessons like aspiring yeah. opera singers. Yeah. Go and go and do a few lessons. And they say, well, I'm not musical. I said, just go that you'll yeah. love it. And, and and they come back and they said, look, I've done I just I haven't got a voice. So I'm totally, you know, unmusical, uh, but but I can now sing. And suddenly that develops the confidence. I think, it's, I think there are ways that you can actually train yourselves to come out of that. Definitely, shell. definitely. When I was at school, I did speech and drama um, lessons. And I think my parents thought that would be a really good thing for me because they probably saw quite a shy boy in me uh, at a young age. And um, as part of those talk you know you had to create a presentation yes. and there were only a few of us doing it you know I think three of us doing it and before my exam our headmistress thought it would be a good idea that we did our presentation in front of the entire school <laughs> but my chosen subject at the time having grown up around horses was that I was talking about um, the horse's bridle and in particular the the mouthpiece which is called a bit and um Anyway, uh, the thing that really broke my, well, sort of, I suppose, um, made or made me uh, to be able to sort of handle anything was that the headmistress uh, sort of announced to the school, said, well, James is now going to do a talk uh, in advance of his speech and drama exam, and he's going to be talking about horses bits. And of course, the <laughs> school just erupted. Even the, even the tutors couldn't stop laughing. And no one listened to a word that I had to say oh, because they're still laughing too much. But um, I think that was a moment, a moment, a pivotal moment for me that just I just thought, well, I, I I don't think he can get much worse than that, to be honest. That's really funny. So 
in moving on in 2019 um having worked at all thought for a number of years you you moved into uh what i would say is the commercial art world away from mm -hmm. heritage very different you know very bold move if i may say so and you became a gallery manager at clarendon fine art and that job, as I believe it lasted about a year, during which it sounds as though you continue to educate yourself. You took a couple of certificate courses at Sotheby's Institute of Art. I wonder if you could just say a little bit about those courses and whether they kind of helped you in your practical commercial gallery management. Yeah, they certainly did. I think those were essential for me to do. I, I knew coming out of all thought, um, not really knowing, you know, whether this was would be the right path for me. Um, so sort of threw myself into the art world and I really wanted, and when I say throw myself, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, and, and doing those courses was a way of, of submerging myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I knew, I knew how to manage a team and I knew going into Clarendon and managing a gallery there. Um, I knew that that would be sort of second nature to me, but I guess I, I, I'm not a natural salesman. And working in a commercial gallery, heavy, heavily commercial gallery like that, um, I knew that it wasn't quite what I wanted to do. Sure. I'm much more of a sort of relationship building um, art dealer. You know, I really want to sort of grow a collection with somebody and and sort of get to know them and have that trust element. You know, being, being able to advise them is important. Yes. Um, advise them in the right way. And doing those courses at Sotheby's just kind of accentuated my that my 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 thinking, understanding exactly what area I wanted to go into, um, what part of the art world I liked and what I didn't like, because I think that's important. You know, if you're in this industry, you know you want to be involved in the art world, and and and, and there's something that's that's gravitating you towards it. But I do think it's important to identify where your strengths are and how to apply those within the art world, because it's like anything in life, if you're not passionate about it and it's not it's not natural to you and you want to find what, what, what feels natural and what feels like something that you really truly believe in, that's when you'll succeed. That's when you'll really go on to achieve something great. And I think doing those courses at Sotheby's really helped my depth of knowledge in the art world, but, but kind of helped me identify the route that I wanted to go down. Can you remember the titles of those courses? One of them was um, quite simply a history of art. Okay, yeah, of course. Just, which I, I hugely enjoyed because whilst I knew about the 17th century old masters, I hadn't really gone back much further than that. And it was really great to learn um, sort of about the Greek period and, 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 and areas like that. And, um, and then the other one was, uh, I believe, managing a contemporary gallery. Right. Yeah. And that was that was great in terms of um, when I w was thinking about setting up my own gallery, it really went through pretty much all of the pitfalls to look out for mm -hmm. you know, what kind of financial support you'd need to start a gallery. You know, all of those sort of little elements that probably I would have made quite a lot of mistakes had I not done that course. Um, mm -hmm. so it was essential, really, for me. Oh, that's good to know. And and um and then in in the unfortunate year twenty twenty the the start of COVID um you you did um uh, fulfil that ambition of setting up your own 
uh, Gallery, and you became yeah. the founder and director of JC Gallery. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, it's um, it's situated on Hay Hill, uh, which is actually one of the you know you don't think of London as being very hilly, but of course there's all this <laughs> geology that that the, the river valley I believe it is to do with with all the steps down to yes. the river and and that that is a that is a kind of curious sort of hill in the middle of Mayfair but um um any reasons why you chose that location and I I th are you sitting there now no I'm not no or I'm at home not, no I just wondered because I've um, never been I, I have to admit to the listeners I haven't yet been to your gallery but as I understand it it's a it's a smaller more intimate space it is it is I mean I think um, when I was looking at spaces, I knew I didn't want a big space. Mm. I knew I wanted something that had charm mm -hmm. um, and had character. This space definitely does. And as you say, it's a small space, it's 650 mm. square foot. It's mm. tiny compared to mm. some of the galleries around me. I'm surrounded by a wealth of incredible galleries that, are, mm. that have these huge spaces. Um, but we're sort of tucked away on Hay Hill and you know, for what we deal in, which is often quite smaller works, not sort of huge grand canvases, there's like, of, of, often, you know, some of the works that we have hanging as part of our show at the moment are sort of five by seven ink mm -hmm. and gouache works. They're beautiful little works. So that sort of space really appealed. I think, you know, Mayfair, because we looked at lots of different spaces. We looked at um, areas maybe in Chelsea or you know Kensington there's lots of galleries in St James now too mm -hmm. looked at all over London but we decided that I think I, I wanted to be part of what I deemed as the epicenter of of one of the greatest art cities in the world you know Mayfair has this rich heritage to it that I guess it, it's it's that that culture in London. It's part of you're part of something. You feel very much part of something cultural there. Yeah, and um, you know, in some you know, you're, I'm a sort of stone's throw from the Royal Academy and, and Cork Street, which obviously is infamous and still has you know some lovely hand painted, you know, signs you know, from the 18th 19th century. And I I kind of I I really love that. And thank God that Cork Street was saved um, yes. in those redevelopments and is still very much surviving and um, yes. so your your specialism you decided to actually have a small specialist um, gallery which i think feeds into the fact that it's quite a small space perhaps and and um yeah i mean uh, listeners can actually look at your website online and look at some of the works from your your current exhibition um on on american modernism and and, and you can see there that they're, they're really beautiful and that but they are quite small scale and that, yes. that's kind of so one of the things you're specialising is like small scale uh, work and, and often like um, not the big oil oils on canvas, but more works on paper. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell us something about why you chose that particular what we would call art market sector, these American modernists of the early 20th century. When I when I opened the gallery, I actually opened with emerging artists. Mm. And um, I did that for, for, for a short period. It became very clear to me that it was going to be a real struggle to compete with the galleries around me. You know, I've literally got David Swerner at the top of the road and um, some other amazing galleries around me. And I thought, gosh, how am I going to yeah. get some traction here, have an identity, grow as a gallery? Um, and it, I, I really had a, a really long think about it. And I thought, you know, it'd be really good to tell an alternative story. 
as part of my studies, I sort of um, focused a lot on American art. And I, I kind of had this idea that it would be interesting to focus on um, some of the early works, say Warhol, you know, sketches and and little notes and anecdotes and, you know, all of those little elements that that crafted the, the artist that he became and the blue chip man that, you know, the, the incredible artist that we, we now know. Um, so I was sort of interested in the alternative side, the, the alternative story. And in my visits to New York and, and such, and I also visited the Whitney and luckily I have friends there and sort of spoke to, spoke to them about what you know, my, my ideas were. And it was actually them that put me on track to look at the American modernists. They said, well, why don't you look at, at this group of artists? You know, they have, they were creating work in the early 20th century at the same time as Picasso, Matisse, Brack, creating equally incredible work. They were creating work during um, a, a, a time of significant change for America, you know, the industrial revolution, immigration pouring into New York, uh, the jazz scene really, really um, starting to become extremely vibrant and popular. And anyway, I went away and and, and um, started researching the likes of Alfred Stieglitz and um, John Marin and and um, obviously Hopper and O'Keefe are the, the, the big hitters, but also lesser known artists like Arthur Dove. And the more that I got into it, the more I thought, I'm, I'm kind of getting a bit obsessed with this. <laughs> you know, it's a bit like Shakespeare in that if you understand Shakespeare and you can get get to grasps with the uh, get get a grasp of the language, you kind of come a bit of obsessed with it. And that's certainly how I became, you know, that getting inside of the artists' heads um, and learning about their stories. And they were all about relationships too. They were all about building relationships within themselves as a group of artists, you know, how they'd get their message across. They were creating very, very interesting work at a time where, you know, in the late 19th century, we were, they were just focusing on beautiful landscapes, traditional landscapes and portraiture. And then the likes of Arthur Dove comes along who is credited as the first American abstract painter and completely changes the landscape, something really new. And of course it wasn't particularly well received when they first did it. Mm -hmm. I remember the Armory Show of 1913, a real pivotal change in American art history is that show, the Armory Show in 1913. And it it's crazy to me how one show could have such a significant change on the direction of 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 the art of art history, but the Armory Show nineteen thirteen is definitely one of those. It's fascinating, um, and that really interested me. But it it's it's I I find it I I found that element, uh, all of those stories and how how it sort of how how it sort of progressed really fascinating. And I haven't really taken my head out of that era ever since and um and so that's really what what drew me to that period and and I, I i realized that um over the other side of the atlantic it's quite a buoyant market for those works and there's not a single we are the only gallery in europe to focus on american modernism and obviously it's ambitious 
there's a reason why there, you know, there's not a gallery that does it. But I do think that these artists deserve their their day in the sun. I think that if you can find James, I think if you can, as a business plan and strategy, uh, and for particularly for a small member, a small group of staff, um, I don't know whether is it just you working or do you have two or three? I have a gallery manager who's exceptional and um, we work incredibly well together. And then we have an administrator too. Yeah. So you're not, you know, it's not a lot of you. Um, but but that it's perfect, I think, to to find a niche there. And it sounds as though you actually have found a niche. And then I guess it's just a case of marketing yourself and so that you're the go-to pe- person when when people are thinking about where to buy the smaller scale works by the American modernists. And as you say, the the big hitters are people like um uh that that listeners lis- all listeners will know Edward Hopper and all listeners will know Georgia O'Keefe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but not so much for these sort of lesser, lesser known sort of media works, as it were. And and of course, this is a great niche for people, for collectors who are interested in aren't very interested in the big canvases, but are interested in the collecting works on pla- on, on paper. Mm. Um, and I guess it's also arguably a good sort of starting point for collectors who are interested in that period to develop their own confidence in understanding where these artists are coming from before they go for the big canvases. Um, but I, I, I also, it's very evident, James, from the way you describe that, that you're interested in their stories. And, you know, obviously story is a big, is a big word over the last few years in terms of marketing. And I, I, my students are very aware that, you know, one of the key things that any artist needs if you're going to sell them, and it can be an ancient Roman sculpture to a emerging artist, they've got to have a good story. Mm. But for 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 the, for you to be able to actually put this to the potential you know buyer and obviously those artists have amazing stories. Yeah, I mean people love to talk about you know their their artwork. It's a reflection of your character. Mm. There's there's a reason why we buy artwork. It's because it resonates with us in one way or another. It has an effect on us on our feeling. It it evokes a mood of some sort. Those are the reasons why we buy artwork. It, of course, there is an investment um, element to it, but but really, when it comes down to it, you have to really love an artwork to buy it too. And I and I, it, it is very much those stories that that, and I think they're lovely to be able to have something like that hanging in your home and someone noticing it and you being able to tell the story behind it. It's just it's such a, a lovely feeling, and that's. That's really why um, I, I do it. This is why I, I do. I, I, I'm in this world, you know, it's for those those stories. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your current exhibition, i.e. The, the facts. What is the title of the exhibition and, and when when it's running to? Yeah. So um, the, our current show is called Seven Americans, and it's mm-hmm. based on a show that Alfred Stieglitz put on in 1925. Alfred Stieglitz is he was a gallerist. Um, he was a, is a, an acclaimed photographer in his own right. Uh, he really was, um, the, I, I guess, the, he, he's been credited as, as uh, the, the, the sort of American artist who, who changed photography from a historical documentation into an art form. He started doing some incredible photography, but he was full of ambition. He championed these artists and pulled them all together and showed them at his various different galleries. I mean, he had uh, four or five galleries um, in succession. Um, 
all based in New York. Uh, his most famous one probably is 291 Gallery, which is named after the address in New York. Um, but Seven Americans was a show that he put on that, that was really quite pivotal for him and for the artist. It was a huge success. Alfred Stieglitz is also an, um, someone who uh, brought Picasso to America for the first time. Um, and um, if you haven't read Picasso's War by Hugh Aiken, I hugely, I really recommend that. It's such a wonderful book, has these lovely anecdotes of, you know, how Stieglitz brought Picasso to, to America and had uh, asked you know, claimed about 83 Picasso works. Um, and the show, unfortunately, was a total flop. And um, Alfred Stieglitz bought one of the works himself and sold one of the works to a big collector, which left 81 artworks, you know, all sorts of different medium, of course, but had to get rid of 81. And he tried to sell them to the Met, which was the wealthiest institution at the time, for $2,000. And the Met said no that no one will ever go for Picasso's artwork. And um, if you can, that's incredible when you think, I think in those days, I think a Rembrandt sold for about $500,000, just to put it into perspective. So $2,000 mm -hmm. uh, and the Met said no. Um, so that's it's, it, all of those lovely stories are included in that book. But um, so Stieglitz was really um, this amazing gallerist and really pushed forward um, abstraction uh, as a, uh, in, in American art really championed Arthur Dove, uh, uh, John Marin, who's also quite a quite a prolific artist of that era, really pushed Marin with his use of watercolor um, as a medium. And um, this this show really that we've got on is a is a, a sort of celebration of that. It's a contemporary exploration of it. It's it's we we have most of the artists that were involved in that that first Seven Americans show. Georgia O'Keeffe was part of that show. It's quite difficult to get O'Keeffe works mm. uh, for, for an exhibition. People not too keen on sending their works across the Atlantic mm. uh, when it's safe in uh, collect private collections abroad, which I can totally understand. So um, it's really our spin on it. And it's, it's, it's a sort of a celebration. And it's so fascinating being in the gallery because Every now and again, you get people coming in that have uh, are familiar with these artists and clearly know their importance in the art in, in, in art history. And they walk in, and you know, the first thing they say, "Oh my, Arthur Dove! I never thought I'd see Arthur Dove in London." And Charles de Muth, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm seeing this in London. And that those are really special moments for me. And um, I really hope that we can sort of continue along this along this uh, route. Sounds it sounds so promising, and I I I I wish you real success with it. It's, it's, it'd be great if this if this if this takes off. Well, um, you were talking about bringing works for the exhibition across the Atlantic. Are, are all of those works sourced out of the United States, or are they coming from Europe or this country? Yeah, I mean, most of them come from um, private collectors, art dealers, or gallerists in New York. Yeah. Uh, the pre predominantly. However, we do have some collectors in the UK that um, have, have, have have these works sitting in, in UK households. So um, we work with them on, mm. on um, whether or not they want, want to sell and what, what time they want to sell and whether they'd uh, loan us any works for exhibitions and things. Mm -hmm. uh, so we work with quite a lot of people across the board, really, and institutions too. So 
Um, we've just started working with the Arthur Dove Estate, which is wonderful for us. That That's was good. a real, a real sort of groundbreaking thing for us. So sure. we're really pleased with that. No, that's that's brilliant. It sounds as though you're 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 reaching out and and you know consolidating contacts, but creating new ones. And you know, as you say, this is quite a niche subject in many. It shouldn't be, but in London, it yes. probably is. And but I, it sounds as though you are getting people through your doors who know what they're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Know. I mean, it's it's and and it's no surprise that people have focused on European modernists because they were incredible. They were pioneers. Yes, and, so it's um, a little bit like. Um, the other way round, inverted. Um, you know, my American students, they, you know, you talk about Richard Hamilton and Peter Blake, who are they? <laughs> and you say, well, they were pop artists in the UK and they were working pretty much on the, at the same time as, you know, your Warhol and so on. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and again, it's kind of underrated, isn't it? That, yeah. And it's, it's similar in your case. When does the exhibition finish, by the way? Oh, it finishes on the 27th of April. So still quite a way to go. That's yeah, we've still got some time. And then we move into a focus on Arthur Dove. And it would be the first time that Arthur Dove has ever had a show in Europe. Um, yeah. We're, we're, we're really excited about that. And um, That's the future. That's the future show. Yeah, that's, that, that opens on the 1st of May. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and again, for the listeners, if you look at uh, the works of these seven Americans on um james's website you're you're you can look at this work by people like Dove. what 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 i found so enjoyable looking at you know your entries for those those different artists was um you know i'm not i'm, I'm a classicist by training um so a lot of these artists i i was unaware of to be honest and i was just really enjoying looking and hearing their stories and realizing how important they were at the time and I think well, it's, it's something really wonderful about also um, resurrecting artists that aren't so well known, even though they should be and were at the time, you know. Yeah, and they're super collectible too. Yep. You know, it feels like that because a lot of these artworks are over 100 years old, but I do think that quite a lot of them would happily hang alongside contemporary works of this day. I mean, I could easily see an Arthur Dove work hanging next to a Tracy Emin. Yeah. and it not feeling out of place it does feel still very relevant and yes. i think that was one of the things of the gallery i didn't want it to feel stale yeah you know these these artworks are over 100 years old but there's no reason why it does it can't be shown in, in a contemporary gallery such as ours yeah one of the questions i'd noted down to ask you is like in terms of art business what what would you say is the kind of added value that JC Gallery offers art collectors. You know, what's your ethos? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you ask that question because I had to think long and hard about that because in a world where people can buy art anywhere, you know, quite a lot of you know, people buy artwork on Artsy and online, and you know, things are done by email quite a lot. It's quite hard to build those relationships. And I thought, what is the what 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 can we do that that why they why would they buy an artwork from us and not have it you know phone up a New York dealer and buy an artwork from them and then them have it ship it over what 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 can be our other than the the asset itself you know what can be our our USP and and really the the way that I think about it is that I try to think about it when I buy art what I really look for. And I decided that the, the best thing we can do is to make sure that every work that we get and claim, either through private auction or, or um, buyer dealer, 
is to have every single work sent to a conservator to clean and then have it placed in safe framing. So ideally you want to keep the, the frame that it, it was originally in. That would be ideal if it's in good shape, but you need to replace the glass, make sure it's UV resistant, you know, all of that stuff. So when people buy an artwork from us, they know it's in the best possible shape that it could be and that it's in safe framing. So it's going to last for as, as, as long as possible, you know, in, in, you know, it isn't best possible shape that it could be. And I, I think that's really something that we're quite proud of that we do. I think it's wonderful. Um, so, so right up to date in terms of conservation ethics. And I love the idea of retaining as much as you can, but, you know, uh, but, but, but changing things that need to be changed Yes. to preserve the work for the future. I mean, that's that's a very contemporary conservation ethic, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And un unfortunately, there are a lot of art dealers out there who aren't so good at, you know, you know, they might get a, an old master uncleaned from an auction at Sotheby's Christie's Bonhams or, you know, wherever. And, uh, and, and then they might have it really poorly, you know, just to make it look pristine as though it's painted yesterday. And we all know that that can end up actually damaging the work over a period of time. So it's nice yeah. to hear that you're on the ball with like contemporary conservation ethics. Yes, I think it's I think it's really important um, because you know they, they they need to be looked after and um, you know even works because a lot of the works you know haven't changed hands that often. Mm. So they they you know they didn't have you know anti UV art glass. Yeah. <laughs> and I think all the listeners will be aware that we're, you know when you're dealing a lot with watercolor that you have to keep it out of the out of sunlight. Yes, yes absolutely. And the heat, you know, don't don't hang a work above a radiator. Absolutely. <laughs> he says, "Look around his room." Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I am obviously I'm careful about what I hang over what and what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's absolutely. a limited amount of wall space. Um, well, and that's it exactly. <laughs> James, maybe you could just tell us something about a typical, you know, maybe maybe a day in your life working in the gallery, the kind of things that you might do from getting into the gallery with your coffee and then, you know, yeah. working through the day. Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it probably won't be a riveting answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> but but really, what we do is um, because everything that we do revolves around American modernism. So we we often keep a close eye. So when I get to the gallery, I'll often check uh, Artnet and read some of the latest news. I like to stay up to date. I think it's really relevant, even though uh, I, I don't really deal in the contemporary world. I think it's important to understand trends and, and what people are talking about, what's happening in the art world, particularly at art fairs as well. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I'll settle in and, and just check the, whether there's any works that are coming up for sale, uh, if any auctions have happened, what sort of prices things have sold for, um, because all of these works that we deal in are, uh, tend to go through a resurgence, particularly if the Whitney are doing a retrospective or MoMA, you know, there's, it, it affects pricing, or it can do quite a lot, and also the time of year too. Um, I spend a lot of time with uh, sort of growing relationships with clients. It's touching base. It's not being, you know, it's, it's sort of, you want to become friendly with them. You want to be trustworthy. You want to be able to, to um, advise clients not to buy works before because I don't think it's right for their collection. And that's, you know, it's important to be truthful in, in, in what you do. And, um, and so I spend a lot of time building relationships, but I also spend a lot of time talking to my colleague, Christopher, the gallery manager, who 
um, is very switched on in terms of the contemporary world and very, we, we talk through ideas, um, we plan discussions, um, you know, to have in the gallery with clients. So got, uh, perhaps I'll talk to a esteemed curator on American modernism and hold a breakfast morning or or even a drinks evening where we can mm. can sort of uh, educate people in in this era. Wonderful. Um, and um, and then it's just a case of inventory and and looking to to speaking to gall gallerists in New York. We love to talk to them, and we have some great relationships with people over there too. Um, so we keep ourselves busy, but also we like to keep the gallery pristine. I think that's very important to make sure that it is in the best possible shape that it could be. Um, and then, unfortunately for me, I have the other, the boring side of things, you know, the financial stuff, you know, uh, paying invoices and, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and, and, and sort of uh, and, and booking things in. But, you know, it, it, the, the fun part is... Um, things like speaking to the curators about, mm. uh, sorry, the conservators, I mean, sorry, about, you know, what 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 they've found with certain artworks. It's really good, really interesting to talk through, you know, what they've found under UV light and some of the, like, perhaps there's been some repairs that have been done on a, on a work that we bought. Um, and I love hearing those, those stories because it's really fascinating to hear what they intend to do with the work. It's a really interesting process. It really is fascinating, and what they do is incredible. And yeah. what you know, the, the, I mean, it takes some time. It takes you know a few months for an artwork to be cleaned properly because it's methodical. You can't rush these sort of things. Um, but uh, that's an element that I really enjoy. Yeah, and shout out to um, Joe Shepherd and Claire Fry, who were the guests on an earlier podcast I did. Who um, Joe is a contemporary conservator, and Claire is a heritage conservator, and uh, they um they 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 do lectures on my course uh, you know back to back so that the students uh, uh, you know a lot of our students are only into old art <laughs> dead art yeah. as the other students call it who are only into contemporary so it's really really good to hear those ideas from both types of conservator really yes um, um, James I think you've already spoken about about um you know your forthcoming exhibitions and um uh, so I don't. Um, I think that if someone wants to visit your gallery, do they have to make an appointment or or, or do they just look at your opening hours on your website? Yeah, opening hours, you know, we're, we're open um, Monday to Friday from 10 till 6 and we're open on Saturdays too from 10 mm -hmm. till 5. And yes, yes. no appointment necessary. We're a very small, warm, friendly gallery. So yes. um, we, we really have this, uh, we really try and go out of our way to make everyone feel welcome in in, in JC Gallery. And um, yeah, look forward to, to meeting whoever would like to come and visit. Well, I, I would hope to bring a, a, a small group of students down. About how many would would kind of that be? Oh, well, we, we, yeah, I, I mean, we've we've had we've had 30 in the oh, gallery. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for, I'll be in touch talks. with you about. <laughs> yeah, please about. do, please yeah. do. We we actually had um, for some of our shows we've had uh, sort of a preview evening, and uh, because we're such a small space, we had people um, sort of having a drink outside on the street because yeah, there wasn't any space that. in the gallery, which yeah. is um, it was a lovely, lovely that, feeling. That always looks good. I always told my students <laughs> if you can if you can invite lots of people and have them out hanging outside the doorway, and you know, yeah. It looks great. So yes. Um, anyway, James, I I personally found this one of the best 
conversations I've had on this podcast. Oh, thank it's you, just Dean, so I interesting. I, I think partly because it was very different to what you know the people I normally speak with on one level. I think it was really good to talk more about a, a heritage house, and everyone should also look up all Thorpe. Yes. Um, and, and 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 see when they can visit that wonderful collection. One thing I don't think we said that might astound some people is I believe I think it claims to have the largest collection in Europe. It does the largest master. private private art collection. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The largest private collection of old yeah. masters, which is an incredible statistic. It's unbelievable. There's there's one work in at the very end of the picture gallery. If you go, the picture gallery will stay with you forever because it's just such an amazing room. But there's one uh, War and Peace by Van Dyke at the end there, which is on a list of things at number 10, that if it's to be sold privately, it still can't leave the country. Wow. There you yeah. go. That's fantastic. <laughs> there, there, there's an example. Um, anyway, James, um, thank you very much for uh, being a, a guest on this week's podcast and, and good luck with um, the current show and then the fourth. Can't wait for the forthcoming one on uh, focusing on Arthur Dove. But thank, thank you, you for introducing much. many of us to those artists, perhaps for the first time. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Really nice to speak with you.